morning. Today's reading comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I invite you just to take a moment and quiet to reflect on what was just read. There's a lot of individual words in there. Um, just take a moment of quiet to, to see what the Lord is asking you to hear from the reading of his word. Let's take a moment in quiet prayer. Lord, we want to slow down and hear what you're saying to us now. So by your Holy Spirit, would you slow down our our mind, whatever's happening outside of this building or whatever we have planned 30 minutes from now or later this weekend, would you put that away for the time being? Help us to listen to your voice and to hear what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in the midst of a, of a series uh, called What It Means to Live for Christ's Kingdom. We have a, a church logo with a banner that says First Baptist Church of Salem for Christ's Kingdom and the flourishing of our city. So we've been focusing in the book of Colossians on what it, what it means to live for Christ's Kingdom. 
And over the last several weeks, we've nailed down a few things which are important for us to know as we walk into this text. And so let me just recount them briefly. First, there's a real kingdom that it was, has a capital K. There's a real kingdom of God that we are uh, marching towards. Jesus is the king of that real kingdom. And there is a way into the kingdom of Jesus. And it's only through his grace and by what he did for us on the cross. In that kingdom, there's a, there's a servant nature to what we can do and how we can serve, where we love people out of a place of brokenness, out of a place of suffering, and that we're assured that this kingdom is one where we can find community, truth, and freedom. And then last week, we talked about the real kingdom. There's a, there's a substance to that kingdom that is more than just rules or legalism or philosophy, but there's a real substance and a real stuff to the kingdom of Jesus that is focused on him, our head of the body. And so with all that stuff in mind from Colossians 1 and 2, today we're going to talk about what does it actually look like to live in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Jesus today? What is the life of the kingdom? So we're taking a practical turn today you remember last week was very philosophical and I had to explain what certain words meant because there just was a philosophy and in that part of the world that we had to kind of take an extra step to understand. I imagine today as you're reading through or as you heard God's word read just a moment ago, there weren't a whole lot of confusing words there. There just was a lot of practical words of things that we're told to put off and to put on, things we're told to think about, things we're told to set our mind on. Pretty, pretty direct, pretty clear. And so today we're going to look at what is the everyday, practical, real life like in the kingdom of Jesus. And how do we step into that? So what is the life of the kingdom of Jesus that we're invited to live into? Just a couple of opening more things here. Um, if you are in Christ... If you are a, a Christian, if you're someone who's taking on his name and you're following him, then as verse four says in chapter three, Jesus is your life. Your life is Jesus. That's what it says. When Christ, who is your life, do you see that? If you're, if you're in Christ, then Jesus is your life. You know, other places in the Bible, it talks about Jesus and it says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Meaning that you're living only because he is life itself. Or John 10.10 10 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And it says, it kind of puts up a, a dualism. It talks about the thief or Satan and it talks about Jesus. And it says of the thief... The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How many of you have felt that way in life at some point? That you've had something stolen from you, somebody's trying to knock you down, or somebody's trying to destroy you. The thief comes to do that. Satan comes to do that. Darkness comes to do that. But Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it to the full, have it overflowing. That's what Jesus came to do. And then, of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to come to the Father, you have to come through me because I am the life. 
Next in verse four, you see it says, so when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Meaning that if Jesus is your life, then you will, will, will guarantee, promise for sure, you will be with him in glory one day. The word glory there is the word doxa. And the word doxa, you may know of the word doxology, which is a kind of a triumphant praise or a hymn of finality. Like this is what's happening. This is a praiseworthy thing, kind of the final end all thing. So if you have the life of Jesus in you, you will live in glory in finality forever one day. This life is temporary. The life of Jesus is forever. Guaranteed. And then lastly, before we get into the meat here, <laughs> this is the meat too, right? I could just preach this stuff. Uh, in verse three, right before that, it says, kind of takes us back. It says, wait a second. For you have died and your life is hidden with God, with Christ in God. So therefore your true life, actually, this may shock you. Your true life is not here and now. The life that we're all living right now is not your true life. You may say, what? I'm breathing. I'm sitting here. This is life, right? No. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So if you believe in Jesus, your true life is with him, meaning that you are, you are marching towards fullness of life in him one day. It's hidden with Christ. So what we're instructed to do is to stop seeking the life down here and to start seeking the life that is hidden with Christ and God there. And I'm pointing there because that's where we think of heaven, but heaven is, is really in a totally other place, right? Totally different reality, but that is true. And so let's get our mind to that place where we begin to, to listen to what Paul's saying of set your mind not on things on earth, but on things above where Christ is seated. That's what he says here at the beginning. So with those things in mind, let's start to dive in a little bit. I'm going to give you two big things about really things that I think are distinctive about the Christian life, the life of the kingdom of Jesus, the life that you and I are invited to live into. That's different than if you're not living in Christ, where you're living for earthly things. And the two things are this. Number one is your mind matters deeply to God. The things you think about, the things you put your mind on during this life matter deeply. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is all of your life today is about renewal. Renewal. So put these two words before you, your mind and renewal. Those are the two things we're going to focus on today that I think can have really practical consequences for how we live our life, because that's what Paul leads us into. So first, let's, let's talk about our mind. Your mind matters. Has anybody told you that recently? That you're not just a, a feeling being, you're not just a heart, but your mind is so important to God. God gave you a mind and a brain to use for his glory. To be a Christian means to use your mind to its fullest potential and capability. Now, pause. Some of you may already be saying, 
I don't want to be a PhD candidate in Christian theology. I don't want to go read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. I don't want to like be, feel bad that I'm not reading enough or that I'm not like college educated or have this big, like whatever. No, okay, pause. That's not what we're saying here. This is not saying you have to be an expert or some deep philosophical thinker or that you have to read a ton. All those things are helpful. But to say that your mind matters to God doesn't mean that you have to be some kind of scholar or wear like the elbow patches on your jacket or some kind of like image you have of what like an intellectual mind, mindful person is. What it does mean that your mind matters to God is that you need to resist living your life based solely on how you feel. You need to resist living your life solely based on what you feel. And you need to think deeply with your mind about things and trust that the mind that God has given you is capable of thinking about deep things so that you can be a lifelong learner of the deep things of God to understand his mystery, the mystery of his plan in God. And so that's why verses one and two say, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. And in verse two, it says, set your mind on things above. So again, I'm just purely emphasizing the, the reality that Paul says, set your mind on things above, not set your heart on things above. Other places in the Bible do talk about setting your heart on the correct things as well. Here, Paul is saying it's also important that we remember to think about the right things, to put our mind on those right things. So what, is this, what does this mean? How to practically use your mind in the kingdom of Jesus. And I'm going to start by telling you one thing to do that I was already kind of giving you a little bit of an out of a second ago. So I'm going to come back and make sure that you don't fully take an out. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. That's the first thing you can practically do to set your mind on the things that are above. The Bible is God's gift to us to set our mind on the correct things. Now, again, I know not all of us are the deepest readers. I know some of us love to read. But it's, it's hard, and I would even venture to say impossible, to be a fully mature, growing Christian if we're 100% ignoring reading the Bible as part of our daily life. Make Bible reading your lifelong habit, whatever that looks like for you. I'm not saying you have to read the Bible in full every single year like some people do, but I'm just saying make Bible reading part of your daily habit. It's a bottomless treasure trove of truth and hope for your life. And it orients your mind to truth and correctness that otherwise you're just not going to get because our mind will be swayed by other things. Netflix primarily. Just kidding. But read the Bible. Number two, in terms of just practical ways to set your mind on things above is, is ask hard questions. Don't give up on the hard questions, but ask them. Bring them to the church. Bring them to other Christians you know and thoroughly discern and talk them through and find trusted people to, to talk about the hard things, things like science and evolution and climate change, right? Don't just like throw them to the side and say, oh, those things are too complicated for me to think about. I don't know how those relate to God. 
Think about those things. Bring him to the church. Things like truth and morality and purpose. Don't just say, oh, well, it's just a big mystery. I don't, I don't know how to go deeper into those things. No, keep pursuing. Keep asking those questions. Keep going to God with them. Bring them to your scripture reading and make them part of your daily discipleship. Again, don't, don't assume that, that your mind wasn't made for those things. Your mind was created by God for you to use it to think about the hard questions. And God will meet you in that place, in community. It's okay not to find the answers. It's okay not to get the answers quickly. You know, even in Matthew 28, right, when Jesus is about to ascend back up into heaven and about to give his great commission, it says in Matthew 28, it says, many that were around him believed in him, but others doubted. These are the 12 disciples we're talking about. Some of them even still had deep questions and were doubting. So if you're doubting, if you have hard questions that you haven't figured out yet, it's okay. But what I'm saying to you, don't give up on them. Set your mind on things above. Another thing here is just, yeah, I've already said this, but put it again. Uh, recognize that your mind and brain was given by God for growth, not for easy doubting. So again, um, because you have doubts, again, I, I'm, I'm encouraging you to lean into those don't just give up on them because they're hard. Your mind was given to you by God. Another thing here is, um, I think sometimes when I say mind, again, we can easily think about books or textbooks or academia or something, but to use your mind also means to recognize beauty. You know, to recognize beauty takes a mind, takes a, takes a brain that is acknowledging beauty. And so an encouragement here is to see beautiful things and to consider them deeply, to think about them, to, to let your heart be turned by thinking about something deeply, by saying, I'm looking at that stained glass window and it's beautiful. And I'm going to think about how beautiful it is and why it's so beautiful and why it's moving me so much. And that, that'll lead you into a place of worship. There's a, a pastor who's from the last century named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he, he was contemplating one of the passages in Matthew chapter 6, where it talks about um, where Jesus is, is inviting uh, the people to, he, he, he says, consider the lilies of the field and consider their beauty and how God even makes them beautiful and how much more beautiful than Will he care for God's people, for humans, if he considers how beautiful the lily is? And so Martin Lloyd-Jones was thinking about that passage. And this is, let me just read you something that he says about that. He says, faith, according to Jesus's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. We must spend more time in studying Jesus's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect things to happen to us. That's not the Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds, think about them and draw your deductions. Look at the grass, look at the lilies of the field, consider them. Faith can be defined like this. 
It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. As we put it, he goes round and round in circles. This is the essence of worry, that it is not thought. That is the absence of thought, a failure to think. And I wonder, agreeing with him, if a lot of the worry that we have is because we've just stopped thinking about things and how God has invited us to think about them. So the challenge for us is to stretch ourselves into a deeper perspective. And that's, you may be saying, Stephen, why are you spending so much time on this set your mind on? And it's because the rest of this has to be understood first with the perspective change that comes with being a Christian. Setting your mind on things above, which means we have to use our our brain and our intellect in a holy sense. And so to illustrate that even better, I'm going to quote William Shatner. Do you know he went to space last year? All right, you may be saying, well, that's just too much for me to think about already. William Shatner, space, theology. Okay, let's do this. What are you doing? Here's what I'm doing. William Shatner went to space last year. He literally, he really did. He flew up in a space. I still just think that's amazing. But I read this week that when he got to space, he experienced something that he never thought he would. Do you know what it was? Profound grief. He said when he first broke through the atmosphere and could see Earth from outer space, he was filled with grief profoundly. He was crying when he saw the Earth from space. Why? There's a there's a, a, a something called the overview effect that astronauts almost always feel and. They said, when William Shatner said this, people have come around and said, most people when they go to space actually feel that. It's called the overview effect. And this is what this article said. It says the overview effect is a cognitive and emotional shift in a person's awareness, their consciousness and their identity when they see earth from space. They're at a distance and they're seeing earth in the context of the universe. And so William Shatner says, quote, it was the death that I saw in space and the life force that I saw coming from the planet, the blue, the beige, the white. And I realized that one was death and one was life. Once he could see the earth from above in real time, it's like he could see life and death clearly. And that profoundly overwhelmed him with grief because he could set his mind on something higher than ever he had ever set his mind on before, and he didn't know how to overcome it. Real life in the real kingdom is, first of all, then a grand perspective change. In the spiritual sense, that's what Jesus offers us, is that setting our mind higher so that we can see life as it really is, see reality as it really is, and be changed profoundly by it and not be filled with grief as William Shatner was at the hopelessness of life and death, but be filled with something else instead. And that's the second point here, which is renewal. That all of real life in the kingdom of Jesus is a life of renewal. 
that will one day be fully realized in heaven with God. But the rest of this chapter, chapter, verses 5 to 17, is a giant list of death and life. And if you had to kind of categorize it well, I think you could categorize it by life is about change from, from death to life and being renewed from a, a reality of death on earth and renewed into a reality of life in the kingdom of Jesus. So change is necessary and important for our existence. And we have to acknowledge that if we want to grow. And change for some of us is really hard. I think the older we get, the harder it is to want to change or to see need for change. Um, It can feel really scary to change. But God invites us into, and that's why I'm using the word renewal, maybe instead of change as much. God invites us into the process of renewal. And how does he do it? Uh, Romans 12 says we are renewed by the, we, we are transformed by the renewal of our mind. He says, Paul says in another place, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern God's perfect will. And so for us, a life of renewal and change happens um, in a pretty stark sense when we come to Jesus. Um, And just to lead into this, I am going to talk about these lists here in just a moment, but um, let me just give you an illustration just to lead us into it. I I did a search this week um, on what the most popular Halloween costume is this year. And I I narrowed it down to the state of Massachusetts. So by Google searches in the state of Massachusetts, do you know what the most popular Halloween costume is by Google search in the state of Massachusetts? It's Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. More people have searched on Google to try to find a costume to be Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz than any other costume in the state of Massachusetts. Interesting, huh? Now... Do you know what the actually most purchased Halloween costume in the state of Massachusetts was? A witch. So what people wanted to be and what they ended up actually buying, actually, in the context of the Wizard of Oz, are exactly the opposites, right? Because if you remember the Wizard of Oz, there's the Wicked Witch and there's Dorothy, and they're kind of at odds, right, the whole movie. So I think, I just thought, I was like, that reveals something about human nature, I think. We look for the good, and then we kind of settle for the the wicked, maybe. I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with dressing up as a witch. You can make your own discernments there. But I'm just pointing out the, the clear contrast here of desire and what actually happened. And what here, what we're invited into is a similar reality. Paul says, put off and put on. Put off in verse 5 through 11. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And verse 12, he says, put on then as God's God's chosen one, holy and beloved. So in verses 5 through 11, he he tells us what to put off. And he kind of breaks it into two categories of things to put off. List number one is he gives five things in verse 5 that are all connected to idolatry. Sexual immorality impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He says all of these are idolatry. 
These are things that we, our hearts tend to go towards to worship. Sexual things, impure things, passions that get twisted into evil things. Covetousness means we are jealous of something else. These things turn into things we worship. And then in verses 8 through 9, he gives five more things, and they're a different category, and they're all summed up in the category of lying or deceitfulness. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. So that's ten things that Paul says, put those things away. They're idolatrous and they're lies. They are not true life. They are false. They are counterfeits of what real life is meant to be. All ten of those things can be summarized in what Paul calls the old self. That's the old self. That's the default life that you live. It's old. It's not life-giving. And so Paul says instead to put on. So if we're talking about putting off the old costume, putting on the new one. In verses 12 to 16, he's similar. He does. He has two different categories. In list number one, he has five other things. In verse 12, five things that are shaped around our identity. He says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. All these things are identity markers, marking what a new person looks like. Because he says, these are what God's holy and beloved ones look like. Ones that understand who we are and what we're living into as God's people. It's about our identity, our true identity, who we were meant to be. God says, put those things on. And then in the second category of the new self, of the things to put on, I think this is really interesting. I think this is, this is where I'm going to kind of unleash this to you and say, take and do what the Spirit tells you to do with this. The, the first things that are put on are identity things, things about you, understanding yourself, compassionate heart, kindness, meekness. The next list he gives in verses 13 to 16 are all things about community. And there's seven of them. All the other lists had five things. Five, five, five. This one has seven, at least seven. And you'll notice that they're not just for you, but they're for you to live out in the context of others. Look at the one another's in this passage. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint, a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And then he says, above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you are indeed called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All of those things are for the sake of unity and for the building up of others. So the life of Jesus, the life in the kingdom is meant to be lived in the context of community for one another. It's not just about getting dressed up with the the put on stuff, the compassionate heart, the kindness, the meekness, and sitting there all by yourself. It's about putting on that new identity, being the new self, and then living it with others and encouraging 
and loving one another, building up unity with God's people for the good of the community and for the church. The life we live is only real life if it's passed on to others. So that's the challenge that I, I'm going to leave you with and leave me with is how do, I, how do I live that kind of life where it's actually not just about me, but it's about the one another's around me. Because that's what Paul's trying to do for the Colossian people. He's trying to build up their church, their people, which is made up of individuals, but ultimately is a, a large community of people that are for the, for the declaring of God's glory to the nations. And that's why we pray for the world, because we believe our little church here can have an impact around the world by simply praying and being unified in spirit. And we can have an impact in Salem by just being prayerful and being unified in spirit for this city, by loving Jesus together and encouraging one another. There's a, a, a missionary who, uh, her name is uh, Lillis Trotter, and she had a really simple observation one time that she wrote down in a journal and it was after seeing a bee. She saw a bee flying around one day. And she made this observation. She said, this bee was hovering above some blackberry sprays, just touching flowers here and there. And yet unconsciously, life, 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 life was left behind at every touch. That's what you are to do. Be the bee. <laughs> Be the life-giving touch every place you drop, just by being compassionate, kind, meek, gentle, but for one another. So by that, the ultimate aim then, Paul sums it up, verse 17, whatever you do, word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's all for him. That's the ultimate distinctive of the kingdom of Jesus. It's all for the king. That's what life is about. Not out of some empty allegiance to, to, to an emperor or to a king just because he's the king, but out of thankfulness for what he's done for us, out of the life that he has won for us. We bear his name, Christian, because he made us new. And he's given us life because he is life. And so just to finish up, I... I was moved to tears uh, recently, but frequently over the last year by a, a song that I learned at the Sing Conference last year that Javier and uh, some folks in our church went to last year. It was a song that was taught to me. The song is called Almost Home. Almost Home. And uh, it's become a family favorite of ours. We'll sing it, um, especially when we're driving home after a long day or something. Almost Home. Um, but let me just read these lyrics to you because it reminds us that the life of the kingdom is lived out here, but it ultimately is fulfilled in a forever home that we're marching towards. These are the lyrics. Don't drop a single anchor. We're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. The promised land is calling, we're almost home. Not a tear shall fall then, we're almost home. Make ready now your souls for that kingdom come. No turning back now, we're almost home. This journey ours together, we're almost home. Unto that great forever, we're almost home. 
What song anew we'll sing round that happy throne. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. This life is just a vapor, we're almost home. That sun is setting yonder, we're almost home. Take courage, for this darkness shall break to dawn. Oh, lift your eyes, we're almost home. Almost home, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord, we're almost home. That is the kingdom of Jesus, where life is forevermore. And we get to practice that in the here and now until that day comes. Let me close us in prayer, and then we'll finish singing a last song together. Dear Jesus, thank you for giving us a life and abundance through your name. Uh, thank you for filling us uh, with something that we can't fill ourselves with, that, um, that our life is, is actually hidden in you somewhere else that is then given to us. We actually can't live our fullest life or our best life now apart from you. It's just empty toil. We're just a vapor. And yet you have given us fullness of life to live. So Lord, teach us how to do that. Set our, teach us to set our minds on you, on things above. Um, help us to, to give, you, give you our full selves because you have redeemed us from a life of, of death. You've given us fullness of life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.